from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to a new episode of the CER podcast. My name is Christian Oddal. I'm the chief economist at the CER. And this week's episode is again a special Ditchley episode in parallel with our annual Ditchley Economics Conference, which is happening in digital form this time. The title of this year's conference is COVID-19, the global recovery and the return of power politics. I will later be joined by Stephanie Flanders from Bloomberg Economics. But before that, I will summarize the latest session at our event, which was on technology and innovation in Europe. We asked whether Europe was falling behind technologically and whether that mattered. As an economist, my first thought was, well, as long as technology is widely available across borders, it doesn't matter where it was invented. For example, everyone in Europe can use Google, even though its algorithm was invented in the US. But that may not hold true, either because there are so-called spillovers to other firms, so that technological progress drives economic growth beyond the company in question. This can lead to whole ecosystems of highly productive firms, such as Silicon Valley. Or because, for geopolitical reasons, it does matter to have access to crucial innovations such as 5G technology or mobile phone chips and the like. But that political calculus can of course be exploited by vested interests, which may claim that support for this particular industry or company is important and how European companies needed to be bigger in order to be able to compete on a global scale. In other words, the economic and political argument could be used to undermine competition. So there was a lot to discuss. And our first speaker was Hal Varian, the chief economist of Google. He looked at the sources of innovation in the US where the private sector was driving a lot of R&D, that is research and development spending, and the federal government was in retreat. One of the interesting things when you dig into this data is the federal government has really significantly cut its R&D funding over previous decades. You can see uh, business, uh, nonprofits, higher education, so on. Federal government was the biggest source of research funding. Now it's really declined quite dramatically. But, of course, the businesses have stepped in to do more uh, funding of R&D. And, in fact, when you look at uh, tech companies, GAPA, they're the leading spenders on R&D. Amazon, Alphabet, uh, and then uh, the auto companies, Samsung, Volkswagen, Microsoft, Huawei, and so on. So you're seeing a big source of, of funding uh, for R&D is coming out of the private sector. In Europe, it's mostly autos and pharma. In Asia, it's telco. In the U.S., it's online. And if you look at Google in particular, R&D share of revenue, that is R&D divided by total revenue, Google has doubled since 2002. It used to be about, about 8%, and now it's uh, over 15%. So there's really a lot of money going into R&D in a variety of areas, as I'll show you. This is AI. American institutions and corporations dominate uh, work in uh, neural networks. Google, Stanford, CMU, MIT, and Microsoft Research are the top five major universities and major uh, GAFA businesses. 
Same thing is true of machine learning, but in any event, it's the same companies uh, and the same organizations, same universities. He also discussed how startup businesses were often acquired by bigger companies. In fact, around half of startups expected that to be their future rather than an IPO, that is going public on a stock exchange. But why do huge companies like Google acquire startups? When you look at Google acquisitions, the typical acquisition is, is what's called an aqua hire, where you're making the acquisition because you're acquiring talent in doing so. So think of Android. There were eight employees of Android when it was acquired by Google. Five engineers, no product, just a plan, some, some ideas, great vision. And uh, they were acquired by Google because of that vision. And you add a few billion dollars and a few thousand engineers, and you end up with a mobile operating system. One area of interest when thinking about competition in tech was the so-called kill zone. Kill zone, this is areas not worth operating or investing in since defeat is guaranteed. But do these kill zones exist? Do the big tech companies create those zones? Halvarian was skeptical. Now, in particular, if you look at the GAFM companies, there's Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and so on. They've all announced major AI initiatives, all of these big companies. So no startup would want to enter that kill zone because how could it competing against these very big companies? Well, it turns out there have been 610 uh, AI and ML uh, new uh, companies formed just in uh, 2018 alone. Uh, and so you're seeing uh, a great readiness to enter uh, competition. Why? Because there's a very good chance they're going to be acquired by uh, some company. And that's not a new thing that's been going on for 25 years, essentially. But it was not just the acquisition of great startups and the associated talent through which big tech firms were contributing to innovation. Some of the best talent also left the big tech companies to found their own startups. Um, it's not just the people that work for a company that help disseminate ideas and products and approaches. But in fact, if you look at the Zooglers, people who previously worked at Google, they've created more than 2,000 startups, which is about 10 times the number of companies that Google's actually acquired. Now, they're small in both cases. The acquisitions tend to be small and the startups tend to be small, but there's a uh, huge amount of learning that goes on when you're working uh, at a company or university, and that working can translate into uh, new innovation. Next up was Monika Schnitzer from the influential German Council of Economic Experts, taking a look at Europe and the state of its innovations and technological progress. She started by taking stock. Where do we stand in terms of innovation? Actually, I think top European research can in fact keep up with top US research in many fields. And this applies also to new technologies like digitization. The problem, however, is that uh, in many of these cases, the leading role in, in R&D is not translated into profitable business models. Why was that? She argued that it was primarily the large companies, some of them a century old, from established sectors that did the research and held the patents. But that could be a problem. In fact, these established companies already have a functioning business model. And they would cannibalize this if they replaced their old model by a new model based on a new technology. AT&T in the last century as a regulated monopolist deliberately held back development of new products such as the answering machine or the cell phone because they did not want to endanger their own business with traditional telephony. 
And that only changed after the breakup of AT&T in 1984, when new competitors then pushed into the market. Of course, politicians should be interested in creating new disruptive companies that conquer new markets. But at the same time, politicians feel a responsibility to protect jobs. And these jobs are currently in the established industry, in established companies. So no wonder that the politicians on the local level, but also on the federal level, are committed to preserving these jobs. So as a consequence of this focus on preserving jobs in the traditional industries, politicians listen a lot to established companies and much less so to potential newcomers. So do we need an industrial strategy at the European level, I asked her. She wisely started by saying well, that we should not use competition policy to promote our established companies. Instead, we should use public procurement to give innovative startups a chance. Now, second, we need to make sure that these new startups can grow quickly on a European-wide level. And for this, we need to deepen the, low, the, the single market, in particular, the single digital market. As we all know, economies of scale, network effects are key to many of these new technologies in the digital arena. So the size of the market really plays a big role here. And she closed with a plea to ensure healthy competition. I'm convinced that the best way to foster startups and innovation is to ensure competition. And here, I think as a EU, we really have an advantage because its antitrust authority has a very strong record. The very fact that this authority, and here I come now to this federal nature of our, of our institution, the very fact that this authority is not dominated by a single country this has made sure that the European antitrust rulings have not been abused in order to serve local interest national companies. So what we need to do now is to make sure that the competition law is amended in such a way as to keep the markets competitive and contestable in the digital era as well. This was the perfect pivot to our third speaker, Thomas Philippon, who has just written a book about American competition policy, but implicitly this book is also a comparison with Europe. And in that comparison, the development of GDP per capita between the US and Europe was largely in sync. So the first order of business is as long as we keep using broadly similar technologies on both sides of the Atlantic, this is not going to change drastically GDP per capita. He agreed with a previous speaker on the merits of European competition policy. And the, the main thing we did well was the uh, competition policy at the EU level. Okay, And uh, you can see it because if you see what happened on the other side of the, of the Atlantic, in the US, this is the example of the telecom industry. So you can see the sharp increase in concentration in the telecom industry in the US and a sharp increase in markups. Now that markups, that might sound a bit abstract. That means essentially profit margins uh, properly defined at the, at the level of the company. But I think a much more direct way to look at it is to realize that American consumers are being utterly ripped off by their telecom providers. Over the past 20 years, Europe has successfully uh, implemented the U.S. playbook to free markets. In the U.S., my, my uh, ballpark estimate is that the median household in the U.S. pays something like $100 extra each month because of its telecom bills. And every single one of these dollars goes through dividend payments to shareholders because if you look at the investment rate of the telecom business, it's exactly the same in the U.S. and in Europe. So none of that has anything to do with 5G or higher investment or any of that. This is purely rent paying to shareholders. Now, thank goodness to Europe, we avoided that, which is why we have a more competitive market in some industries in Europe. 
The US had been quite successful in creating new digital businesses, but only COVID-19 really made the current period stand out. If you look at uh, the ratio, the market value of the top five firms in the US, it's been 10% of the market since, 19, since the late 70s. So the names change, but if you took the top five firm by market cap, they always account for about 10% of the total stock market. Uh, it used to be IBM, GE, Walmart, Exxon, and now it's different. And of course, today would be the Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, uh, uh, Google, Facebook. But, um, you know, this number was roughly constant. That was true until COVID. COVID changed that. So today, for the first time, it's 20%. To what extent do the top firms contribute to innovation? He looked at the contribution of these firms to labor productivity growth in the whole economy. That is, how much the economic output per worker has changed over time. If you think about a dominant firm, like a star, okay, how can they contribute to, to uh, overall growth in the country? Well, they can do two things. They can, with the same pool of resources, capital and labor that they hire, they can become more productive. This is the within uh, industry, the within firm growth. So this is holding constant the inputs do they generate growth internally? And what you can see is over the past 10 years, it's been extremely disappointing. In fact, the median is close to zero. So these guys do not improve productivity year on year with the same pool of uh, inputs, much less than firms used to do in the past. Of course, but that's not the only way you can contribute to growth because you can also, you're already more productive and you hire more resources. That's a reallocation component, okay? So then by putting resources to a better use, Okay, you also contribute to aggregate growth. And you, you do see a pickup since 2010. Okay? So since 2010, it's not so much that these firms have become more productive on a uh, per unit basis. It's just that they've attracted more inputs and therefore they contribute somewhat more. But if you get the total contribution of the top, so this is for the top 100 firms, aggregate productivity growth in the US. You know, it's just disappointing. Whereas in the past, the contribution of the top 100 firms to growth was about 0.75% a year, which is a lot. But unfortunately, the, the, the stars of today only do it to the tune of 30 basis points per year. The final speaker was Merle Maigri, a security expert currently working for the e-governance academy in Estonia. Security aspects have taken a center stage in the industrial policy and geoeconomics debate in Europe. And she first invited us to consider how Europe can help shape regulation in the new digital world. I believe Europe's comparative advantage in the global economy is its normative power. Setting rules is central to EU's identity and commitment to health environmental, privacy, and cybersecurity standards have enabled EU to develop the widely acknowledged Brussels effect. The Brussels effect is a term coined by Professor Anu Bradford, who will be on this podcast next week. It describes the effect that the EU sets high standards and other countries voluntarily follow in part because of the economic power and pull of the European market. And similarly, uh, the ambition of EU's digital single market is to define a rulebook for the digital economy and society covering big tech to data use and privacy from infrastructure to cybersecurity. She described a few initiatives and laws economists should be aware of, such as the aim for a secure cyberspace. It's important to maintain a secu secure cyberspace 
is one of the core principles in defining EU's position in the context of a global technological race. The General Data Protection Regulation uh, is also setting global standards for privacy and data governance, um, putting additional cybersecurity requirements to all different stakeholders, individuals, private companies and public authorities. But how strong can the Brussels effect be, considering that large political powers such as China also see the value in determining standards? She argued that the balkanization of the internet was not as dramatic as is often claimed. My third point addresses the question, is a balkanization of the internet inevitable? And here I um, tend to agree with um, James Lewis from the uh, CSIS, who, uh, who claims that the architecture of internet is, is changing. Um, as the political concepts that underpin it also change. So the ideology that supports internet has been changing for some time already and going into the direction of um, greater sovereign control of networks and network activities. So of course, this does not come without tensions, but the real risk here is, uh, uh, is not separate internets or balkanization as such, but rather a fragmentation of governments where the underlying protocols uh, would still support global connectivity, but that gets overlaid with many different uncoordinated and uh, uncoordinated um, rules for data, privacy and security. Some balkan uh, balkanization is unavoidable, but if we mean, um, uh, but what we should do about it is to try to develop a robust mechanism for cooperation among us, the like-minded democracies, US and EU included, and use this as a platform to negotiate and, and avoid risks of damage from balkanization while meeting the legitimate concerns that are reshaping the internet. So not fight it for any means because there are some, some, um, some sovereignty is inevitable, but stick together. And I'm now joined by Stephanie Flanders. Welcome, Stephanie. Very good to be here. Uh, Stephanie is head of Bloomberg Economics, uh, formerly economics editor at the BBC and chief market strategist for Europe at uh, JP Morgan Asset Management. And before that, she was a senior advisor to US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Um, Stephanie, thanks a lot for joining us and, and helping us make sense of what we've just heard. So you've dealt with a few complex issues in your professional economist life. Um, but would you agree that the issue of technology and innovation and competition policy and combine that with the new geopolitics of it all is one of the more complex ones? Well, I mean, the world is a complex place. So the more bits of it you introduce into your conversation, the more complicated things are going to get. I mean, I suspect it's not more complex. It just it feels more complex because we talk about it much less often. So, you know, the economics that we hear about most of the time uh, is all macroeconomics. And you know this, you know, when you say you're an economist, people immediately start talking to you about interest rates or their mortgage or inflation. And, you know, that's the economics that you see on the news when you see it. Um, but as we all know, and certainly any, any economist knows, it's the microeconomics that's actually a lot more important to all of our lives in the long run. You know, nothing is more important than productivity. You know, making more stuff with the same number of people is how we all get rich. And that's determined much more by the microeconomic forces like technology, innovation, competition, not any of these big macro things that we talk about. And yet we don't we don't focus on those very much. We leave that micro to to industrial economists and other people who are much less visible. And that's almost certainly a big mistake, because when we have debates like this, we feel at sea. 
And now th this debate has taken center stage in part of the, the, the political dimension that comes comes on top of it. But let, let us start with the um, with um, European policy to drive innovation. So it seems that we are overall good at research and development in Europe, um, but we are not as able to spread it uh, widely into the economy or turn it into profitable business models as the US has. Um, and at the same time, we heard that our competition policy in Europe seems to be working quite well, so that our policy framework um, makes sure that consumers uh, are not being ripped off, but that they enjoy fair prices for products that come out of innovation, both foreign and domestic innovation. So our listeners may wonder, what is missing in Europe to stay at the cutting edge of technology and, and, and make the most out of it? Yeah, there are a lot of different things there, and I wasn't sure where one would come out. I mean, there's a there's a, a simple response from some of those numbers about how 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 lucky uh, European consumers are relative to to the US. That you know, if companies can't make a lot of money out of an invention because competition is fierce and prices are low, then you're less likely to invest. You're less likely to be working on that cutting edge. Um, but that that seems a bit complacent from the European standpoint, because it's not usually the complaint that we make about Europe, that it's too efficient. Um, I suspect that the bigger issue that was mentioned by some of the people in the, on the, in the seminar is that it is the scale of the market, that uh, especially in areas where there hasn't been proper uh, development of a single market and services in these areas where we have seen enormous innovation in the last few years, Europe does not provide the kind of scale that the US does. Um, we often talk about the lack of a risk-taking culture. I think that can be exaggerated, but it's certainly the case that these that big firms in, the US, in Europe don't kind of embrace failure or even try and encourage um, entrepreneurism and failure in the way that um, in some happens in some of these US companies. I think clusters was one thing that was mentioned in the dis, in the discussion. Uh, it was very striking. There was a fact, I can't remember it now, but there was a fact that someone came up with about what proportion of tech jobs in the last 10 or 20 years have been created in a handful of locations. I think that's very striking. I mean, if once you've, if you've not been part of the sort of initial um, group of companies that developed a certain um, technology, then it's very hard to break in afterwards, even just as a matter of geography. People in Europe move to Silicon Valley rather than trying to set up their own um, tech cluster. But that broader issue, I mean, I talked about productivity at the beginning, that question of have you got an economy that diffuses innovation uh, and so that the companies on the cutting edge are spreading their innovation to the rest of the economy, I think is really fundamental everywhere. And we heard it's not just a problem for Europe, that even in the US, we might be getting to a point where those big tech companies are no longer um, sort of sending out their the, the waves of innovation across the economy anymore. They're kind of keeping it to themselves. And that, that could be a real problem for the future in the US as well as Europe. Um, thanks. So you, you talked about this this clustering. I think this is one of one of the things that Europeans might find striking that there are very successful clusters in the U.S. And I'm thinking, of course, of of Silicon Valley. Um, so how much how much does that have to do with with the human capital, for example, that comes from um, top university departments? I'm thinking about one of the most important innovation of the day, uh, a COVID vaccine, uh, is driven by quite diverse teams of top research in, in some locations. So is one of the one of the ingredients uh, of innovation the human capital and the innovation clusters does europe need more um, sort of top universities that can compete with the top departments in the us and china 
Yeah, and I think there's just it's one of those things where you can have a starter advantage that may have begun in a completely different uh, sector. I suspect when the history of those vaccine developments is told, if you go back far enough, it'll go back to some um, quite obscure reasons why that particular cluster around the Oxford University research and AstraZeneca um, ended up with what everyone agree was a real starting advantage in this race because they had invested over time. They'd ended up making primary invention, the primary investments in the development of this kind of vaccine. The same is true of the other vaccine stories in um, in, in the US. You know, it's historical, it's happenstance, but once you have a critical mass uh, in a particular area or around a particular firm. Uh, or few firms, uh, that is very hard to break into. And we know that, uh, and I think universities do play a part in it, but it's also the case, you know, going back to this question of Europeans not being so good at sort of um, bringing innovations to market or making the most of these innovations, is there are lots of universities that uh, have produced well-beating technologies, but they haven't then, that hasn't translated into really lucrative business models for world-beating firms. So I think it's not just universities, it's that nexus between the universities and product development and taking them to market, taking it to scale. Let, let's turn from, from the innovation to sort of the politics and the geopolitics of it all. We, we heard from our speakers that our competition policy in Europe is working quite well, uh, but that competition policy will come under pressure from two sides in the future. I think one is how to deal with the digital platforms. Um, those are industries with very large network effects, which generate an economic rent that is a profit over and above the normal profit of a business. Um, and they can almost act as gatekeepers uh, of the internet, which is very profitable and also a politically sensitive position to have. Um, so do you expect the EU politically to act boldly on these issues? Are we facing a moment of truth here in, in, in that the EU designs an entirely new Uh, rule book, which could then, you know, change the rules of the digital game forever. I mean, these platforms are mo almost all U.S. companies. Uh, and the allegation that this is European protectionism against the U.S. Uh, will, of course, always be part of that debate. Well, I do think it's fascinating, you know, going back to some of the numbers we had before, it's fascinating that European consumers have benefited so much from falling costs in these key sectors. But arguably, that has come at the price of ceding control of the dominant platforms, the dominant industries of this, what people think of as the fourth uh, industrial revolution. But I, I do think you're right that uh, there could be an important moment coming. Um, but the world is moving Europe's way in a lot of these matters. And that was mentioned in the on the seminar that it, it, when it comes to privacy, online security, treatment of individual data, Europe has already played an outsized role. And there is something in this idea of Europe being the great rule setter, the norm developer in these areas. I just wonder whether we'll see the same phenomenon play out where Europe's consumers benefit from Europe playing that role of global rule maker, potentially. But the innovations and the companies that keep challenging those rules, disrupting the world, um, will still more often be from the US and China. And then you're back to your first question of whether it matters where the innovation comes from, uh, if we're all benefiting. And, and the second area in which competition policy will come under pressure is, is uh, in terms of the geoeconomics of it. Do we 
allow European champions to emerge, to be able to compete with Chinese and US giants. We heard very strong opposition um, in uh, to that from a few economists on our panel. And I think few economists would support such a program of making competition rules less strict in order to compete with China. But at the same time, um, a lot of politicians seem to favor it. So um, is that just lobbying or do, do we economists miss something important geopolitically in this debate? You know, I think that, I mean, the first part of what you were saying, I think it's, um, I, I'd be, it's, it's right to be wary of doing anything to consciously reduce competition in a world where, by and large, economists' concern has been that there's been a re decline in competition and potentially a decline in competition, which has helped produce lower productivity growth uh, and uh, lower growth overall. So um, I'd be wary of that. And I think, you know, the best argument against Europeans trying to develop national or regional champions is not that they haven't done it before, it's that they've tried many times and they've uh, had terrible results. Um, but I do think historically, economists have probably got to be honest with themselves about this. We haven't been good at spotting the hidden costs and benefits associated with having uh, national or regional control over key technologies or industries. Um, you know, and for example, is it is it optimal for the world that there is just one company, Huawei, who appears to be really far ahead of everyone else in the world in its ability to deliver 5G, this fundamental technology. Um, it probably isn't uh, optimal to have this one company be so dominant. And as we know, it's posing lots of difficult challenges for countries. Um, but I bet, you know, it was, it was probably all the individual decisions by countries that allowed them to dominate globally were very rational and given a big thumbs up by our by us economists. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. Um, this was this week's CR podcast. Um, remember to tune in next week for another digitally special episode, this time on trade and investment and how Europe can use its trade and investment policies strategically. Stephanie, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.